Time Machine Keeper Productions presents Brian Geisen's The Process. This recording is made for the use of those who are not able to read, those of which who are not able to see, and for no monetary benefit to the producers or narrator. Any monetary gain from this will be sent to whoever owns the rights or should receive the benefits to the Brian Geisen Trust. If this is not taken up, it will be sent to the Master Magicians of Jujuka in Morocco. The Process by Brian Geisen. Narrated by William Hochstein. Chapter 1. I am out in the Sahara, heading due south, with each day of travel less sure of just who I am and where I am going and why. There must be some easier way to do it, but this is the only one I know, so, like a man drowning in a sea of sand, I struggle back into this body which has been given to me for my trip across the great desert. This desert, my celebrated colleague Nib Kalun, the historian, has written, this desert is so long, it can take a lifetime to go from one end to the other and a childhood to cross at its narrowest point. I made that narrow childhood crossing in another continent, out through hazardous tenement hallways and stickball games in the busy street down American Asphalt Alley to paved playgrounds, shuffling along welfare wait lines into a maze of chain stores and subway turnstiles, through them into a concrete campus in a cold gray city whose skyscrapers stood up to stamp on me. It's been a long trail of winding down here into this sunny but sandy middle passage in my life in Africa, along with the present party. Here, too, I may well lose my way, for I can see that I am, whoever I am, out in the middle of nowhere when I slip back into this awakening flesh which fits me, of course, like a glove. I know this body as if it were a third party, whose skin I put on as a mask to wear through this land of fear. And I do go in a sort of disguise for, like everyone else out here in this blazing desert, where a man is a fool to show his face naked by day. I have learned to wrap five or six yards of fine white muslin around my head to protect the mucus in my nose and throat against the hot, dry wind. All you can see of me is my eyes. For once, I look just like everyone else. No need for me to open these eyes. I know what's out there. Nothing but the very barest, stripped illusion of a world. Almost nothing. Nothing at all. Bundled up like a mummy, I huddle here under my great black burris, a cape as big as a bag for an animal my size, shape, and color. It also serves as a portable tent smelling of wood smoke and lanolin under which I fumble for the two pencil-thin sections of my cespi, a slim wooden keef pipe from Morocco to fit them together. A fine, flesh-pink clay pipe head, no bigger than the last joint of my little finger, 
snuggles up over a well-fitted paper collar shaped wet with spit. I try it out like a trumpet, airtight good. My keef pouch from Morocco is the skin of a horned viper sewn into a minatui and stuffed with great grass. I check with my thumb the tide of sharp, fine, chopped green leaf which rolls down its long leather tongue, milking most of the keef back into the pouch. What remains, I coax into the head of my pipe, with the beckoning crook of my right forefinger. A masterpiece matchbox the size of a big poacher's stamp leaps into the overturned bowl of my left hand, riding light but tight between the ball of my thumb and my third finger. I make all these moves not just out of habit, but with a certain conscious cunning through which I ever so slowly reconstruct myself in the middle of your continuum, inserting myself, as it were, back into this flesh, which is the visible pattern of me. Yet, I know that this whole business is a trap, which may well be roven of nothing but words, so I joggle the miniature matchbox I hold in my hand in these master peach matches, and here chuckle back what always has sounded to me like a word, but a word which I cannot quite catch. It could be a rattling Arabic word, but my grasp of Arabic is not that good, and no one, not even Hamid, will teach me what the matches say to the box. I hold the box up to my ear as I shake it again, trying to hear what the box stutters back. If I remember correctly, Basalids, in his game, reduced all the names proposed by the Gnostics to a single, rolling, cataphonic, Silonic word which he thought might well prove to be a key to the heavens. Kala kala kula kala kula kala kua kala kula kala krua. Can the matches match that? I love these little matches brought back in Tanja. Each match is a neat twist of brown paper like a stick dripped in wax with a helmet shaped turquoise blue head made to strike on a miniature Sahara of sandpaper slapped onto one side of the box. Matchbox is clapped onto the claw of left thumb and middle finger. This indifferent clapper proves sudden saddest if it rams poor Matchbox back into himself with little finger of right hand clear up his ass. Little finger holds him impaled, preferring a drawn full of identical matches to... Caliper, who solemnly select one brother, pinch him tight. Matchbox is closed with a small scraping sigh against the heel of right hand. Little finger withdraws from the rape to help snub poor Match against the backside of his box, striking and exploding his head. I elbow my way out of this cocoon of felted camel hair to smell of wood smoke, to thrust forward this pipe, pouch, matches, just as we go over a bump and I open my eyes. I'm not alone. We are five passengers in here, where we should be only four in the blistering metal cabin of this truck, whose hot red diesel is housed in with us too. Two seats on either side of it are called first-class transportation, while third-class is out in the back on top of the cargo of stacks beneath a crackling tilapin. And the front seat driver, who looks like a chipmunk with a toothache because of the way his sloppy turban hangs under his chin, crouches down the wheel like a real desert rat. Black Greaser's number two man has been playing a long, windy tune on a flute made of a bicycle pump, and a bump nearly rams the flute down his throat. An anonymous vomiting man, like a doll leaking wet sawdust and slime, flops out the far window carsick while here right beside me, clamped into my seat while we are not in the air, is middleman stowaway. 
We rise shoulder to shoulder, and I hope he lands back on the diesel and burns. He's risen up in the air without losing his cross-legged Sufi saint pose, as if it were to show me he knows how to levitate. I shoot up my own dusty eyebrows at him, as if much to say, so can I. But he glares at my pipe with all the baleful ferocity of a carnival bird. He feels I pollute him with my keef smoke. Too bad. We both drop back onto the seat. I paid first-class transportation for these broken springs. No need to share them with him. Yesterday, or the day before, or one of those days, back along our trail, he suddenly jumped up from behind a bare dune in the middle of nowhere, flagging us down. I'd spotted him up there ahead of us and just said to myself, Is that a man or a bush? When he started up, skipping and waving his arms. Driver changed gears without daring to stop in the sand, from which this little old stick of a man hopped up quick as a bird when Black Greaser threw open the door, grandly raving him into the seat with me. He is a hodge, just back from the pilgrimage to Mecca, a little saint, a new little saint. Black Greaser let his whole ugly face fall apart in a welcoming grin. No baggage, father? The little old man twitched aside the yards of gray-green Muslim, piled onto his head, and swathed his bearded face. No baggage, this is the way I came, and ach Allah, this is the way I shall return. I push back the window of opalescent glass, frosted by the blasting of the sun, and sand, to thrust the whole length of my slender pipe out like a periscope into the bouncing air of the dazzling desert, through which we churn night and day no faster than a funeral. When I lean out the window, the light out there hits me like a blow. Shading my eyes, I look down into the granule shallows of flowing sand on whose current we ride until I am dizzy and sick. Everything visible crawls, even the cloth of my sleeve, when I look at it close. I glance up and out with my eyes clenched against the all-but-intolerable brightness of the blazing desert where the mirage sizzles across the horizon like a sweep of glittering marshes, thickly grown with tall rushes whipped with the wind. Air ignites and flames up all around the truck like the billowing breath of a blast furnace searing my lungs. The water should lie not more than half an hour's distance away, or so you might think. Hour after hour, day by day, we bore on through the sands without reaching those marches. All this ululating emptiness aches in my ears like the echo of a shell. Now and again, I swear I can hear the lowing and bellowing of invisible herds of longhorn cattle, but of course, there are none. When I listen even further down into myself, I contact something else which shakes my whole intimate contact with me. When I try to tune out the constant moaning roar of the wind, my whole being vibrates to a sound down below the threshold of hearing. My sinuses, antrums, the cords of my throat and cavities of my chest, the very hollows of the, my bones hum in a register too low for my ears, but for no known reason I tremble, I quake. This, so they tell me, is the voice of Gol, and Gol is the djinn of the desert, keeper of the land of fear, grains of sand, and their incalculable billions of billions are grinding grinding together, rolling and sliding abrasively in dunes as big as New York and as high, vibrating this ocean of air through which we paddle like slick fish on their flight from some distant dynamite blast. At this, a very American thought suddenly strikes me. They do have an atomic center out here in the Sahara. Could this air be radioactive, perhaps? Or is this just the black breath of ghoul? 
Far away back up north in the green hills of Morocco, which I call home since I began to merge almost against my will into this scene with Hamid, my Morocco mock guru, everyone around the Kif cafes is always talking and singing of the Sahara, but not one man in ten knows where it begins and ends or how to get into this desert. It lies down that way, many days marching, they say, swinging their long, slim Kif pipes around very vague south. Yet every last man sitting there on a straw mat on the floor feels he owns the whole sleep of the Sahara Desert, personally, inside his own Muslim head. Let some pale-faced tourist appear on the scene, and they will all proclaim themselves competent guides, if you please, when not one of them can read even a map. In my forlorn American way, I thought to teach Hamid the way of the land, and in this end, I pulled my poor self together to make an expedition up out of the damp grotto in which Hamid and I were living in the native corridor of Tanja, in the impassive of a narrow alley, in the section of a medina below even the tight-packed little pedestrian square of cafes called the Soco Chico, in other words, lost I adjusted my shades and smoked one last pipe for the road before I stepped cautiously out into the mainstream of mankind in the swarming alley as narrow as the corridor that is our street. At first, the entire Medina of Tanja feels like one mysteriously rambling mansion packed full of maniacs, but eventually what looks like a terrifying trap to a tripper gets to feel like your very own home. I cut into the traffic and keep my head down as I whip around corners with my eyes glued to the ground, so as not to be noticed, I hope. I slid through the alleys so wide I could touch the walls on both sides with my elbows, and I had to flatten myself into doorways to let heavy-laden dawn keys and porters push back. The whole point of this game, best known to old Tanja hands, is to get from one side of the Chico to other without crossing it, invisible to all traders and touts. My own cunning route, first shown to me by Hamid, of course, is a turn-off between the old Hatol Satan and Casa Delirium, once a whorehouse in better days. This way, you can bypass not only the Soco Chico, but also steep Sanjean Street, running up out of it, lined as it is with neo-lit bazaars swarming with tourists and tramps. I meant to drop by the American Library on my way up to the boulevard in the new town of Tanja, but when I caught sight of myself in the mirror in a shop window, I thought, "Uh uh-uh, better not. I managed to make myself look a little more human before I got to the Café de Paris and the Place de France. I drew up in front of a raggedy man who sells raggedy books on the street. On an earlier trip, I had spotted his stock of old, dog-eared French guidebooks and road maps of North Africa, put out by Michelin, the maker of tires. As I bent over his wares, I picked up on the fact I was getting scanned from behind their newspapers by a whole row of white American and British operatives seated, as always, out on the terrace of the Café de Paras. They had their telepathic finders out, feeling all over me as I bought for one dirham a map which is now out of print. I scuttled back down to the Sokol and called Hammett out of his cavernous keep cafe to drag him home for a bout of instruction in the map. Number 151 Morocco, Algeria, and Tanzania, one centimeter for 20 kilometers, or one in 2,000 thousand. On this map, one hand span to the right along the Mediterranean shore lies Roran. With your thumb on Roran, your little finger lands on Algut. If you pivot due south from that white city on the cliffs, your thumb will fall on Gadaria, 
the mysterious desert capital of the dissident Mozambites. All those take at least three or four days of travel from the bright blue straits of Gibraltar, along the lush coastal valleys, over green hills and mountains so high they are covered with snow. On the far side of these are plains marked in brown to denote almost no annual rainfall at all, and they must be crossed before you can get even to the fringe of the bright golden Sahara. The trouble with this map is that it has two big insets of Warren and Algip shown in some great detail at a scale of one five hundred thousand, and these effectively obscure the desert trails to the south. I trundled myself back up to the boulevard again next day, or was it next week? Anyway, one fine day when I could tear myself away from the great smells of Hammett's cooking and managed to part the curtain of Keefe which hung over our door, I fell out onto the street and worked my way back up to the boulevard bookstall, where I bought, unobserved, an old guide to Algeria and the Michelin map number 152, a great prize. This pretty pictorial map was printed to illustrate the glorious exploits of General Leclerc, who marched a free French army from Dakar all the way north to Tunis, across the Sahara by way of Lake Chad. Not even the Romans could have brought off such a feat, but Hamid shows little interest in anything done by French or the Romulus in general. Being black, I am not a real Romy to Hamid. On the other hand, Hammond looks down on all blacks as the natural slaves of the Arabs, even though his own hair is curly enough to give him trouble finding a barber back in the States. Hamid shuts me up when I tell him I am black. You're not black. You're American. Safi, enough! Hamid suddenly becomes fascinated by the form he began to see in my map. He pointed out that the great desert is in the shape of a camel, stretching its neck right across Africa, from the Atlantic to the Red Sea. He laughed like a lunatic to see that the western butt-end of his camel was dropping its Mediterranean crud on the Black Sengalis. Charcoal Charlies! Hamid caused them, having picked up the term in the port. The head of Hamid's camel drinks its fill in the sweet waters of the Nile. The eye of the camel, naturally enough, is that fabled city of Mars, where the Arab movies are made and all the radios ring out all over the streets paved with gold. Us poor Nazarenes call the place Cairo, for short. Suddenly, somewhere down on the lower middle belly of Hamid's camel, about four knuckles north of Kano in northern Nigeria, I doused out a big carbuncle. With no more warning than that, my whole heart rushed out to this place, which was pictured as an outcropping of extinct ash-blue volcanoes jutting up out of the bright yellow sands. I noted that the whole area was called the Hogar, and it seemed to boast only one constantly inhabited place, whose name I made out to be Tam. I was truly surprised to hear myself calmly boasting to Hammett as if I were American Express, I'll be in this place here, this time next year. Ach, Allah, God wills, Hamid corrects me automatically, and then, as if he were indeed the consul of Kiev, who was sending me out on this mission, he went on, I'll get them to cut you a green passport of Kiev to see you through everything. I'll see that you get the best of the crop from Kedama, and I'll bring it down from the mountain myself with the blessings of Hassan I. Sabah, the father of grass. 
On your way, you're bound to run into some other assassins. But Hamid, I laughed, I'm not an assassin at all. We're all assassins, all of us, he gravely replied. When the time came, I found myself settling back in the train, leaving Tanja, gliding slowly along by our magnificent deserted beach on the Straits of Gibraltar. So I'm off, I sighed to myself in my cold first-class compartment. Just then, Hamid, who I have not seen for more than a week, swung aboard with all the fine acrobatic ease of an old constabandista. With a big golden grin, he waved my passport under my nose, a parchment sheep's bladder as big as two fists, packed hard as a rock, with the pick of the crop from Ketama, high in the hills of the Rift. We tried a few pipes of the pot as the green winter landscape of northern Morocco picked up and flowed past the window of our train. A few happy hours later, Hamid dove off the train outside of Kibir before we got to the station. No money, no ticket, I travel free! He was going on up to the hills to his village, Shajuka, Mount of the Owls, to stay with his uncle, the master's magicians who practice their pan music all day on their pipes as they amble out of their little whitewashed thatch houses and their white woolen homespun jabalas and their white, white turbans to wander over their green little hills after their goats. I gave Hamid the money to have a sheep killed in my honor for a feast up there to bring me luck on my journey, I said. He waved once and blew me a mischievous kiss as he slid through a hedge of giant blue cactus and was gone. We just sat in Kib for a long hour in the rain, which I spent fending off children and steaming wet rags who lounged through the train selling green oranges, used razor blades for, and I know, reclaimed chewing gum, and they're not very appetizing selves. At long last, the train started up again with a jerk, and we soon slid off into the night. But it was hours past dinner time when we finally staggered into the junction at Sidi Karim, where I learned to my horror that I would have to wait several bleak hours in the dingy station, which the station master was even then shutting up, turning off all the lights but one feeble bulb outside in the rain. As he got into his bicycle to pedal off through the downpour, he regretted that there was no cafe or restaurant where I could find food in the forlorn verdage of Sirikaram. I took out my pipe and managed to light up in the lee of the wind. Quite quickly, I felt very much better indeed. As soon as I was turned out again, I caught my breath of a gasp of fearful delight when single step outside the murky circle of artificial light and I was back in Africa. East wind tore great silver rents in the night sky and slashed an occasional sharp sluice of rain across the shining railroad tracks alongside which raked choruses of bullfrogs recited the intimate words they were set a long time ago now as their zikir. Kalu kara kara kuru kara kara kuru kara kara kuru kara kuru kara 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 kuru kara It sounded like skydiving bats looped about the lamps they lit across the track presently. Train coming! The bats squeaked up in their ultrasonic radar frequencies like the brakes on distant steel wheels. When the train did come, it came in an orgasmic rush of hot diesel oil odor, trailing a veil of orange blossoms like a bride. As a charming excuse for its weightness, no doubt.
The train was strangely empty, almost like a ghost train, with only a few sleeping Moroccans huddled out under their hoods. Carrying no baggage ever, I made my way to the bar, where a group of French colonials eyed me coldly, taking me for a Moroccan I rather suspected. I adjusted my shades, forgetting for a moment just how much more Moroccan they make me look. At the bar, the Moroccan barman refused to serve me at first, pointing to a fly-blown text on the wall which said in several languages, No alcohol may be served to Muslims, followed by the text in very small print of a dahur, or order in council, promulgated before the last war. I settled down at a table and got something both to eat and a drink when I showed the barman my U.S. passport, but he went on speaking to me in Arabic, nevertheless. The French people got off at Frez, where we barely stopped. The train rocketed on through the night up to the pass at Taza, and when it ran out to the frontier at Aouja, whose trouble had been reported on the outskirts of town, but despite this, no one even asked to look at my passport. On the other side of the border, I found they had put on a sleeping car, so I paid a supplement on my ticket and got some sleep. In the morning, I lit my first pipe and looked out on a new landscape. The stainless steel sun glittered through clouds onto the coastal plains where the red tiles on the rooftops of the houses and barns make it look like Alsace rather than Africa, giving the tiny robed figures of Arabs in the background an air of people flying past in a dream. I took out my journal and wrote, As no two people see the same view along the way, all trips from here to there are imaginary. All truth is a tale I'm telling myself. When I got to Algut late in the night, I realized that I was the sole passenger to get off that train. The station, awash in shallow neon illumination, was ghostly and cold. There was no one about but me and the exhausted, panting train breathing heavily beside me in the empty, echoing station. I abandoned the train and made for a public telephone to call up the hotel, but the phone was dead. Somewhere I had heard there was a curfew. Perhaps that was why no one was about, not even a sentry to challenge me at the gate. I walked out into the street, where there was not one single taxi, except one waiting just for me. I ordered the driver, in my almost impeccable French, to take me swiftly to the Hotel Saint-Georges, on the heights of the city where the suites of rooms in that old Turkish palace are named after the commanders of World War II, who once stopped there amidst the luxuriant gardens with some long-dead pacha long ago ordered to be laid out and planted with 100,000 and one varieties of palm. My driver glanced at me oddly in his real rear window, but he may have realized I was merely quoting the old pre-war guidebooks I fancy so much. When I was high enough... And when I am high enough, I quote almost anything, from Aesop to Zarathustra. I judge from the back of my man's neck that he was probably a very white Croatian Blackfoot, a colonial leftover. Nevertheless, I leaned over the front seat to ask him politely what that was, pointing down to a sawed-off shotgun laying beside him. He replied, there were hoodlums about. 
The streets we flashed through were shining with rain on the tram tracks along which we skidded as we climbed. Patrols of sodden soldiers huddled here and there under the trees in public gardens. Their firearms and the whites of their eyes glinted sharply in our headlights, which the driver blinked only for military jeeps. High above the harbor of Algut, sentinels stood guarded at the gates of the St. George's. Not for the first time in its history, I judge. The hotel itself was locked up like a fortress. From inside, one man opened the door there cautiously to my knock, as another man covered the crack in the door with a gun. They had a message for me at the desk to say that two American gentlemen were waiting for me in the Churchill suite. I replied rather grandly that I wanted my room and my bath and a good hot dinner with a bottle of French wine in front of an open fire before I saw anybody. Sponsors be damned, I thought I was going to be very grand. Positively, I was not about to go crawling up to them right off the beastly train on my hands and knees like a supplement. They had the foundation money for me. I meant to look good when I accepted it. They probably thought I was being arrogant, but I was nothing but tired and more than a little bit stoned. As I lay back in my hot bath, I giggled. It was awesome, the matter-of-fact way Hammett had taken my magical flight. I laughed aloud at the confusion of terms. For what is magical, Hamid considers normal, and besides, he expects nothing less out of an American, his American at that. Of course he is right. I've done a very American thing. I've forgotten now where I first picked up on the foundation for fundamental findings, with an address in Basel, oddly enough. I am not about to explain foundations to Hamid. Besides, what could I tell him, that a foundation gives you money if you know how to beg for it, and I do? I've taught, I've published. Hammond is not likely to read my history of slavery in Canada, which serves to get me out of the States in my first Fulbright years ago. My book could have made me a full professor with tenure, what is more in almost any good school in the East, and would have, I think, if only I had been white. As I ponder on this, I play with myself in the suds and stand up, creaming my whole body all over with soap in front of the full-length mirror they have opposite the bathtub in this luxurious bathroom of the General Alexander Suite. When I applied my full, for my Fulbright Fellowship, I sent them this very white photograph of myself. When we all passed muster at a cocktail party before sailing, I thought some members of the board were surprised to see me in the old flesh, as we call it. It was not a nude photograph, of course not! I laughed and saluted my white sponsors in the mirror, waving my cock at them before I rinsed off and became my black self again. I have been told that Fulbrights are already a legend in the grim groves of American academe, since so many of us are still drifting around the world instead of returning to teach. What could I possibly teach anybody since I have found out how little I know? Why, my first trip to the Haman with Hamid taught me that Americans do not even know how to take a bath. I remember him saying, it's a good thing you're circumcised anyway, so I'll not be ashamed to show you to Muslims at least. I tried to follow the ritual he showed me as I kneel in the spacious tub of the hotel and rinsed my mouth out, using only my right hand, which serves me also to eat. My left hand I use only to swab myself after toilet, and I never put it in the common dish, no matter how carefully I've washed. I step out of the tub to drape myself in a giant-sized white towel, posing in front of the mirror as Alexander the Great. I figure out all these old generals must be regular narcissists if they need these big mirrors to try on their armor. 
I wonder what kind of bathroom my sponsors must have in the Churchill suite. And I wonder if they are busy bathing each other as Muslims were do. Or are they just sitting around dressed and listening to the radio waiting for me? Then I struck a very grand Roman pose in front of the peer class. I am the great benefactor endowing poor scholars, paying both parts, playing both parts. I am throwing off my toga to grovel naked at the grand benefactor's feet. I am the newly malmuted slave who has worked out his indenture to the great libraries of Alexandria. I slobber ecstatically over the benefactor's invisible hands and feet, nearly pissing myself on the floor out of sheer gratitude. At that very moment, I hear the hotel servants moving about in my room, so I jump up to make sure I'd lock the bathroom door. A very nice terry towel bathrobe was hanging on the back of the door, so I slipped into it. I tied up my towel into a towering turban around my head and strode back to the mirror. I felt much more like the pacha ordering his slaves about than the poor, stoned, wandering scholar I am, waiting for a handout from a foundation such as the one to which I have obviously just sold myself, as they like to say. In my application, I sold them on the idea that it would be of interest to someone with my background across the Sahara, taking advantage of commercial transport as far as the village of Tam in Turin country. From there, I would strike out back down the old slave trails of the Sahara, which are still being used by the nomads. I will continue down, right down, to the slave coast, as it used to be marked on all the maps printed in Europe, because all of Europe was engaged in the slave trade. I intend to find coastal steamers to make, take me around the big bulge of the continent, stopping along the way at all the old slave markets as far around the hump of Africa to St. Louis and Segal, north of Dakar. One thing I neglected to tell the Foundation when I applied is that I have left not one foot back in their world, as they think, but a more mere fading footprint. This foot I put forward into the Sahara is already firmly implanted in this African world, where my guide so far has been Hamid. I wonder where Hamid is now. One Arab hotel servant was on his knees, lighting the fire in my drawing room, while another assisted him. Two slightly grumpy young waiters, who looked as if they'd been booted out of bed, wheeled in my meal under the direction of a head waiter, while a wine waiter followed him in, nursing the wine, which he set to warm in front of my fire. A fat Arab chambermaid, looking like an animated sack of potatoes wrapped in an old lace curtain, waddled around aimlessly, looking for my bag to unpack my clothes. This is the way I came, no baggage! I barked this out in my best imitation of Hamid's crude country Arabic. They all looked rather horrified and incredulous as they speak a quite different Arabic here, but they snapped to attention all right. You can't treat me like a tourist, is all I was telling them. I settled down to eat my shrimp salad cocktail and was revolted to find under the spicy pink sauce mostly wet lettuce and nameless whitefish. I waved without words for my porridge and my bottle of Chateau Latour 1952. Finding it corked and gone a bit thin, I waved it away and back to the cellars for another bottle. I thought to myself, man, oh man, if I could only show this to Hamid, he would know it was all an illusion. After I, he and I were living in a leaky two-room house without inside water in the middle of Tanjo only last week. A tall, dead, black, Sandinese waiter came in with another coffee, all dressed up like the head eunuch of the late Pacha's harem. I had him bring me back the Solmer with a large snifter of pore and asked them to turn out the lights as they went. I sank back into my chair to, 
the firelight through my colorless pore in the belly of the glass. What I saw made my hand tremble, for I was thinking of my journey, of course, and there I was in a bright red movie of fire, which was being shown like a miniature chivy on the convex side of my glass. I peered into the fire, where I saw myself like an ant in a torrid of ants being whirled along by the wind on a burning leaf like a litter peliquin all in flames carried on the shoulders of a streaming throng of naked people themselves all in flames who ran me along through a country on fire in which trees, grass, and the very sky were blazing around me. We rushed through a river of fire down which we paddled to an ocean of flames where I ran up the red-hot iron ladder of a fireboat under those grated decks burned a seething white-hot cauldron of whites. In the flaming red wind we sailed like an arrow from one burning port to the next fiery town on which we slept down to stoke up our ship's boilers with a sizzling stream of white colonials who flared up and burned like a gem or the core of an autumn exploding. I rubbed my eyes, shivering. It was cold in my chair as the fire died away. A second later, I shot up, almost out of my skin, utterly startled by the sudden preternatural racket of awakening birds all screeching at once in the palm trees outside my window. When I looked out, it was morning. Two days later, when I had bought a rucksack and a little gasoline primus stove, I said thanks and goodbye to my sponsors with my hand over my heart. That is where, along with my U.S. passport, I always carry my money. I caught a very early train out of Algut, up country to Blida, and that afternoon I rattled through the high mountain passes to Baghari on the rim of the Sahara where the train tracks end. There I caught a bus to Jafara in the bare metallic mountains of the Alud Nali a tribe of tinkers whose women are prostitutes loitering around like painted idols, suggestively clinking with lucky gold coins. Long after dark, I changed to the back of a burlet truck in a rising sandstorm. In the hours after midnight, we passed through Lagnata, where the French painter Formatine was the first white to spend a summer more than a hundred years ago now. He mistook that one idyllic oasis For all of the Sahara, while we barely stopped there at a filling station under some palms whose ragged heads were whipped down into the driving sand, the yellow headlights of our truck drilled out a sunny tunnel through the roaring streets of the town as we bored our way back into the thick of the Sahara. The wind scourged the tracks we followed, tracking across a vast, howling plain, until several hours later we landed in the lee of the long walls of a desert, Kavasahari. We changed through a banging broken gate, stampeding the hundreds of camels of several caravans which had taken shelter in the vast open courtyard. On the far side of this harbor, light streamed out from the tiny windows of one small room, like a cabin built to huddle against the far wall. Someone in there on the floor was making tea by the light of a hurricane lamp. Inside, I came across an old visitor's book, without a cover, in which there was a signature and comments dating back into the last century. I added my name, Jules O. Hansen III of Ithaca, New York. Moroccans tend to pronounce my name like Hassan, 
So that is why they all call me back in Tangier, Asan Merikani. I signed that as best I could in Arabic. I had no comment to make. The following day, we got to the sly and secret city of Gardia, the outlaw capital of the Mozabite dissident tribe, who are driven out into these desert potholes where they found water many centuries ago. From this stronghold, the Mozabites have always ventured back into the Orthodox community as small grocers who live in their shops, which are real family affairs, crawling with children like mice. They are rapturous, good-looking, inbred people whose tiny children can do sums in their heads, running whole shops before they are ten years of age. Experts at false weight and short change. For several hundreds of years, at least, they have sent every last penny of the money they amass back to their isolated city, guarded all around by the Sahara, where it is buried, they say, under their windowless houses. The Mozabite treasure of gold is greater than that of Fort Knox. Gold goes in there? and never comes out again. A Mozabite woman, on the other hand, may go out of her house twice in a lifetime, once on her wedding, and once to her funeral. From the better homes, a woman never goes out. She marries a resident cousin, and when she dies, she's buried in the garden. I tossed all night in an Arab hotel on a bed so hard it may have been made of gold. An order of drains came gliding through the room, so strong it glowed in the dark like a ghost and left only a faint, luminous trail of iridescent slime where it passed. Black greaser down in the narrow court of the Kenavasi, guarding our truck like a treasure, whimpered away all night on his flute made of an old bicycle pump playing over and over the only windy tune that he could play. Oh, I got a galza in Guardia. She's rich and loaded with gold. I want to marry her, but her father says no. Oh, we'll buy a diesel, my love. I swear they hung three hundred millions in gold on your neck, but you can't move out of that room. We'll purchase a diesel, my love, with the gold. We'll cross the Sahara and never come back. In the morning, I went out in the cool, bright air. just after dawn, to find the whole city already afoot doing business. In their handsome, open-aired marketplace, half as big as San Marco in Venice, but with whitewashed arcades, I bartered my GI boots, field jacket, and worn Levi's for sandals, baggy sole-sole pants with embroidered pockets, and this fine black burris, which has made me feel invisible here since it first draped over my shoulders. Shyly, I bought veiling. Five yards or so of fine muslin to wrap my head and face against the dry desert air and the bite of the sun. Since then, I go automatically more and more deeply disguised through their country of fear. The silky, surreptitious silence of the Sahara starts in Judea, where every soft footfall is showed in sand. A hush hovers over everything like the beating of invisible wings beneath which one hears the incessant hissing of the desert. Men and even women speak softly, knowing they will be heard. When desert dwellers meet, they stand off a few paces to whisper sibilant litanies of ritual greetings, almost indistinguishable in sound from the rushing of stiff cloth as they bear a lorn arm to reach out and softly stroke palms. They exchange long litanies of names interwoven with news and blessings under a spell of loosely knit identity is thrown all over generations of the faithful like a cloak. 
and ye shall drink water no wine, neither shall your tell your son sons forever, neither shall ye build houses, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyards, but all your days ye live under tents, that ye may live many years in the land where ye sojourn. Everything cracks with static electricity, as if one were shuffling over a great rug. Everyone in the Sahara is very aware, tuned into great humming silence, through which drones the sound of an approaching diesel from hours away. Previously assured, transportation suddenly becomes precarious. We all sat or lay around in the shade of the tree, which stood becalmed in the shallows of some new time barrier. Departure was indefinitely delayed, while the truck throbbed gently as if poised like a porpoise ready to take off. Travelers must show their identity papers to the captain of Sahara Security in the Burj or Fort before leaving, likewise trucks. Officially timed departures are said to be relayed and need to the next Burjar or Fort, where the captains are supposed to follow your progress across the floor of the desert like a cockroach crawling across a carpet in broad daylight. A conspiracy of silence on the part of the Arab truck drivers seems to oppose this occult power of the captains. Restless and bored and just about ready to take a last turn around the marketplace, I was lucky enough to still be there when the truck suddenly began to take off unannounced. I scrambled up onto the vibrating cabin, screaming like an American tourist waving the proof of my right to first-class transportation under the nose of the new driver who was simply strolled over to the truck, jumped into the cabin, thrown in the crutch, and started to leave. Even now I sit here looking at the back of his head, wondering if he is not stealing the truck, the cargo, and me. Later that afternoon, no, the next afternoon, we picked up the Hodge back from the pilgrimage, the little old man I had taken at first for the bush. I recollect Al-Hajiz was skinned alive in Baghdad for proclaiming, If a bush can say, I am the truth, so can a man. I have not been comfortable since. We glide along hour after hour like a metallic dung beetle, pushing its nose through the sand, probing the great howling waste. Only sand dunes move more and more slowly than we do. Schools of golden dunes, which vary in size from the ones you can ride astride to some twice as big as this truck, cavort like dolphins across the trail. We were not here when the trail was laid, and they may be gone by the next big blow, or they may grow into a dune as big as a city, they tell me. We break a new trail over the hard, black rag in which dunes seem to lie half-submerged, for we are skirting a giant paw of the great sandy erg which lies... Artworth, the Sahara, like a vast rosy golden sphinx as big as a country, guardian of the sandy wastes. At times we roll down steep corridors of rotting stone, which take us from one geological layer to another of this spot where earth looks like a peeling onion. Torrents of water can sweep down these canyons without warning when rains have fallen miles away, gathering on vast and pervious plains to rush through here faster than a locomotive. Many a slow caravan has been overtaken and drowned under a well of water beneath a cloudless sky. An hour or so back, we stopped on a ridge of this giant washboard to exchange news with a group of wild-looking world workers who turn trails around moving dunes or lay down such marvels as a hundred mile flattened out jerrikins pointing like an arrow on the horizon and at the horizon across quicksands. 
I suspect them to be forced labor of sorts, for not even a starving nomad would work in such conditions, but they seem jolly enough for such a pack of jackals bound up in their rags. Their official name is the Genie of the Sahara, but everyone calls them more simply the Broken Boys. We entered and passed through a string of oases, Cal Algog, without stopping for anything but water and fuel, because Driver wanted to climb onto the high plateau of the Tamanet, the Table of Stone, before nightfall. I barely looked out from under my burras at the monstrous horror of the landscape out there. Long after sunset, we halted our steps, and while the others fell out to sleep beside the truck, I stretched out in the cabin, where I was glad of the cooling diesel beside me, for the night had turned very cold. Late the next afternoon, we rolled down the great military ramp called the Akba, which was built long ago by somebody's army. The trail ahead looped like a slack fire hose over an immense charred plain on whose far side crouched distant dunes at whose rosy paws lay the ancient city of Sala. Salan was once a market town known to the caravans of Solomon, with whom the inhabitants dealt in gold, ivory, ostrich prunes, and of course black slaves, some say they still do. I went directly to the military fort, and there I read a notice, posted in French, on the Redmond Wall. Every traveler, without any exception, must already have posted a bond in order to enter. The country of Garamantias. I entered the fort to ask for the officer in command. These men have no particular names of their own, but when the sun rises high in the sky, the natives call them captain, loading them with reproaches because they burn and they weigh lace to the surrounding country and themselves. Herodotus was my authority for this. I radioed back to the American consul and Algot asking for a letter of guarantee to be sent in my name to the next post south, the red village of town. Now there is a mountain called Atlas, so high the top of it never is seen, clouds not quitting its summer or winter, and the natives take their name from it, being the veiled Atlates of legend. I radioed ahead to the Atlates, to say I was coming, bond or no bond. These people are reported to eat the rock dragon, a species of giant lizard whose meat they scoop out with a big wooden spoon as he roasts on his back over the fire. They call this lizard their maternal uncle, and they are said not to have any dreams. I'm still quoting the first story in Herodotus, but only by memory, of course. When we debarked in Tom long after midnight, Greaser, who had never spoken directly to me before in all the miles we had spun out together, drew me aside in the dark. An assassin, he murmured, presenting me with a slim, broken boy in rags, who dropped silently from the back of the truck onto the sand between us. After all, the same word assassin and hashashin can be used to denote those who smokeef, so I took it in this sense, glad enough to have a guide in the dark. My young guide packed up my sack, drawing me out into the night after him as he moved silently ahead of me over the cool, silky sand. We walked down an avenue of featheredly Tamiscus trees, beneath which we sat for a while, smoking my pipe without saying a word. Then he led me to a ruined hut, whose cracked mud walls threatened to cave in on us. The goats of the wild, wandering people came to glare with yellow eyes at us from the fringe of outer darkness. Beyond the square, white patch of light thrown in by my gasoline prima stove, on which we made tea. We fell asleep in there, 
wrapped up in my big black burrs. But in the middle of the night, knee-hobbled camels stumbled into our ruined hut, nearly breaking the walls down on us. I insisted on moving out to a place in the open where, just before dawn, we were almost run over by a pack of tiny wild asses who pulled up short a few unshod hooves from our heads like inquisitive schoolboys scampering away as I clapped my hands at them. In the morning, my broken boy wanted to draw me along his way through the quiet sandy alleys of Tam, but I insisted on going straight to the fort where I found a letter addressed to me by Mr. Noblock, U.S. Vice Consul in Algot, stating, the Council General has been informed by the Government General that as far as the Antonys, the name of the nation inhabiting the sandy wastes are known, but beyond them all knowledge fails. A bond ought not be required of an American traveler intending to visit the sandy ridge as far west as the Pillars of Hercules. I surmised the Vouse Council had been dripping into his Herodotus too, so I asked for the officer in command. I was taken in to an adjutant, who informed me that the captain of the Southern Wastes could not see me, but until he would, I would not to leave Tam. I wanted to visit Murmur, said to be a city of silence, about a two days' journey from Tam. The adjutant said no. Murmur is said to be built entirely out of slabs of purple and greenish-white gem salt, and therefore so dazzling it cannot be approached or even easily seen in the daytime. Its inhabitants come out only at night. The salt is quarried from an ancient crystalline fro, which spills over a broken rim of hogger on the far side of Tam. The hogger is an immense volcanic cup of basalt, brimming of sand, its jagged rim rises nearly 10,000 feet into the milky sky against which it can look peacock blue or vervillian green. It stands on an eternity of absolute desert, infinitely attractive to those who know those glittering wastes. Far, far to the south lies the broad savannas, the shimmering glasslands where naked black men of infinite beauty and dignity herd their lyre-horned cattle. Beyond begins the brush and the forest throbbing of drums, the jungle through which broad, calm, dangerous rivers confront you right down to the sea. I walked out on to the bright morning through the silent village of Tam, whose one broad avenue of white sand bordered by gay green tamarisk trees from the red mud fort to the red mud marketplace built by the captains in Sudanese flamboyant style. No wheeled traffic moves except by direct order of the fort. Down by the waterless Udud, blue-veiled men were barracking camels. Black men were loading them. I asked for the master of the caravan, intending to go with them, when I heard them to leave before nightfall. At that moment, a uniformed runner from the fort came up silently over the sand with a coiled whip in his hand to inform me that I was to speak to no one in Tam and that I must move into the hotel before noon under pain of the captain's displeasure. All Americans of whatever color must sleep under roofs. I shrugged, thinking I could shake him off, but he fell into step behind me, dogging my footsteps so that no one would speak to me or sell me anything to eat in the market. I allowed him to herd me into the hotel, which turned out to be a one-story building of red mud, splashed around the doors and windows with whitewash. 
I brush through a curtain of big wooden beads, stepping directly into a dark room where, behind a primitive bar, the Syrian manager lay drunk on the mud floor in a puddle of urine. Several sullen black boys were skulking around, so I ordered them loudly to wake up the white man who opened his eyes and struggled up on one elbow, staring at me dully. I bent down to help him, but when he saw the color of my face in front of him, he suddenly hurled me on a hunting knife with a six-inch blade. The knife struck me flatly and clattered harmlessly to the beaten mud floor. Startled, I asked him, Do you know me? Involuntarily speaking in English. He sat up and demanded my papers. When I handed him my American passport, he looked through it dubiously for quite a long time, trying to run a dirty thumbnail under my photograph, flicking at it for several minutes before he barked to one of his boys to show me a room. My room had mud walls and a mud floor, a split palm ceiling which dribbled sand onto a gray sheet thrown over a bare iron bedstead. The only other furniture was a battered tin pail of water. Barred windows looked into an open-air kitchen court where food of a sort was being prepared by three ragged old women with tattooed faces who sat on the ground screaming back and forth at each other over their pots at the top of their lungs for hours on end. Meals were served by the scarecrow boys who shuffled back and forth between kitchen and dining room stuffing into their mouths whatever rejected food guests had left on their plates. There were flies. The boys were covered with flies, like a living garment. Flies swarmed around them like a veil, supping on the juices of their big, empty eyes, which they rimmed like animated mascara. Flies landed to drink at the trough of their looped, loose lips or get pushed into their mouths along with the food. Naked, puffed-belly children begged for scraps outside the dining room window or just lay there listlessly in the dust like sick iguanas covered with flies, cramming red earth into their mouths. Flies swarmed so thick on the dining room table that I took them for a furry tablecloth until a boy made a lazy sweep at them with a filthy rag. Then they rose for a second into the air, only to settle back again in precisely the same order. Flies in the Sahara ride in squadrons on everyone's back. They show a decided preference for khaki, and their remarkable discipline is most clearly observed on a khaki field. They ride around on everyone, nose in the wind like glittering chevrons, flight patterns which lift into the air to shift and reform as their field moves. I might have been welcome at the hotel, for the Syrian, too, was at war with the captain's butt when night fell like ink dropping into water, and he called me to drink and to settle with him, and some other pale faces at the bar I had to refuse him, and so lost a possible ally. I slipped out of the hotel to where my young guide, the broken boy, was in the threadbare shadow of a tamarisk tree. Somewhere out there in the dark, Someone was singing in a husky, quivering voice like the wind. Oh, we all cross the Sahara and never come back. Eternity flows all about us as we pull at my pipe, utterly silent under the stars. Our feet make no sound as we pass through the shallows of starlight beneath the ghostly tamarisk trees and over the last sandbar on the edge of the village. Where are we going? To the Sahara, he whispers in my ear, with one arm about my neck. I can hear the pulse jump in his wrist. Suddenly, and inexplicably, 
There is a rough mud wall under our outstretched palms as we feel our way to the door of this compound out on the outskirts of town. Somewhere within, somebody plucks at the strings of an instrument. The player runs up a shimmering, chromatic scale, and as our lips break apart, a quick fire of atomic thorns bursts up snapping on the other side of the door. Through the cracks between the boards, we can see into the African compound glowing red in the firelight. When my little friend softly raps out a rattling code on the door with his knuckles, I hear with a smile the same chuckling words the masterpiece matches say to one another. And to the box, animals are stirring in there. Someone is shuffling across to the door. My companion is gone. Eskun, who are you? They ask from inside the door. And I hardly know what to reply. Who am I indeed? Someone I think I must know, and who surely knows me, has opened the door and stands there with the firelight behind her, inviting me in. This black witch shape against an orange background of fire is familiar to me since the dreams of my childhood, and the sensation becomes more and more overwhelming as she flaps up and down, bowing me into the compound, dancing in front of the flames. I step into an abode courtyard of sculptured mud, the color of a burning rose, glowing like African flesh. Dear little donkeys and a baby camel turn to blink at me from under a palm-thatched manger. Mothers and grandmothers sit smiling around the fire. Everyone who has ever loved me is here. I am in Africa, home. I bow, and we softly stroke palms, murmuring greetings and blessings from the distant hills and plains. A door is flung open to my right, making me blink in the sudden diamond-white glare, so many times brighter than firelight, which streams out from that room. Holiness shines out from a chamber as bare as a Sahara shrine. Singer is there, sitting cross-legged on a golden straw mat, with his big, full-bellied gimbri of loot he cradles like a murmuring child in his lap. A tiny, carbid cantri map whistles and flares, illuminating the room less than his smile. Where he sits, the ground is a throne. Singer's giant shadow leaps up the red walls behind him, overwhelming the light in the room as he stretches out his arms, bending over the lamp on the floor to welcome me, drawing me in. The wings of his cloak extinguish the lamp for a second. Just the time to whisper in my ear as he embraces me. Dar karati karkret, in darkness the path. I set my sandals neatly on the smooth floor of white sand at the foot of an iron army cot, with its sheet drawn tightly for inspection, the only furniture in the room. Hanging high on the wall over an empty, monumental fireplace sculpted in red mud is a rifle, no other objects in sight. My place is beside Singer, on the roven straw mat to his right facing the door. I throw back my burnus to pull out my parchment bladder, packed hard and as big as two fists. 
With some little ceremony, I pull and slowly unwind the throng at its neck to show him the emerald brass of Kamatha, my passport. His eyes and smile widen. Allah! He breathes in a voice almost as deep as Ghoul's own. From the depths of the unlit fireplace, he drew out a span of bamboo as thick as a cane and half as long, onto which he fitted a clay bowl as big as a briar pipe for smoking, packing it full of my keef. We smoked the first pipe together in absolute silence, hearing the brothers arrive in the courtyard. Singer clapped for them to come stumbling in, slipping off their sandals in the sand, murmuring greetings and blessings as they shuffled up one by one to snatch kisses from my lucky hand before settling down in a ring. The big pipe was stoked and lit by Singer, who passed it around the full circle instead of letting each man finish his much smaller pipe as we do in our chapter at home. I was only mildly surprised. Some of those present had come three or four weeks by camel across the Sahara to be with us that night. In such scattered communities as these, small divergencies creep in. The pipe passed and passed again. I knew they had never smoked any keef like this before. Without thinking, some of the brothers began to recite. With a smile, because I am not really one of them, I drew slightly out of the circle to let the singer slide them into a more intricate pattern of words. But he arrested them all with a great clap of his hands before anyone could start to profess. Eruptly, they stopped and rose to their feet as two latecomers slipped into place. Singer, their master, stepped into the center of the circle as the brothers joined hands. I remained in the corner, seated in their leaping shadows. They stamped and swung hands in order to catch up the rhythm, and then they began jumping and shouting in unison, Allah, Allah, Allah. Exhale in all the first syllable, inhale in the second it becomes, Allah, ha, Allah, and then ah, ah. Ah, and at last, the cylindrical rattling word of our zakar, the pair of unvoiced aspirates are key in our link, what the matches say to the box. When the master raps out a command, they all go into reverse, the dancers stop jumping, exhale, knees bent, inhale, straighten up, then they stand still while they jump with only their chest, inhale a sharp glass ball on the ah, and exhale at one grade lot on the ah. From sixty paired strokes to the minute, they dropped to about forty-five. Eight minutes for each. It is always advisable to have one brother outside the circle to act as an assassin guardian who can pick people up if they fall too soon and put them back in their place. Singer moved about the inside of the circle, looking sharply into the eyes of each brother as he strummed rapidly on his gimbri. When he bent down to where I was sitting, I gave him a quick lift of my chin to indicate two brothers who were faltering, and he jumped back to switch up them in line. Outside the circle again, I began clapping my hands as Hammond instructed me back in Morocco, but Singer shot me a flash of distress, for suddenly, one after another, the brothers stepped forward with eyes completely divulsed, revulsed, crying out in rapturous told bliss, exquisite pain thrilling along on one nerve. I left off as he caught them up to pull them along as he knows them best. On the strings of his gambri, with one hand strumming, too fast to be seen. Beyond that, when the word of our zikr was oh, has opened them up, was opening them up, they entered into a state where they bark or grunt from the very depths of their entrails.
Is there a curious animal sound brought up from the solar plexus? I've heard something like it made by static women worshippers in storefront churches back in the States. Here, only male voices are used, and this is more frightening, for the voice of ghoul bubbles up from the pools of their depths, a truly subterranean sound in which the voice, singing throat, and the songs are all one. At this, the brothers all drop to their knees, still jumping their chests until they fall in convulsions flat on their face, in a star formation beating their heads on the ground in a ring about the feet of sweet singers their chic. In this close place, their youngest brother falls over my knees, so I kiss him on top of the head. He got up at once to take his place tightly wedged in beside me. Singer went on twining his gimbri over our heads of the others in the same orthodox way, making the string say, God is great. God is great. God is great. Over and over again until they began to sit up, wiping the sweat out of their eyes, the foam from their lips. Singer started them swaying to a new lilting tune as I refilled the pipe with my excellent kamtama to send it passing around the reform circle on the mat. I told youngest brother I had come further across the great wastes of the world than he, from beyond a great river of salt called the Atlantic, which runs away in the sands to the west. For the rither, I quote, have more need of the fountain than the fountain hath need for the river. I am that river, running away on your Africuit shores, where from your lips tonight, dear brother, I've heard the fountain well up, bubbling up from the great fossil underground river, where the brined crocodile of our master, Hassan Isabah, old man of the mountain in the great sandy waste, has lurked for centuries in darkness. Youngest brother nodded eagerly. Yes, one day he will break out to devour our enemy the sun. Ah, so he will indeed, I thought. Mr. Ugly Spirit himself disguised as a hydro-helium bomb. Yet, oh, the strange relaxation of it! I alone of all these assassins had ever been foolish enough to conceive of happiness. The staggering assumptions in my young companion's calm eyes would make my white American compatriots collapse with a whimper or run screaming for the police. There is no friendship. There is no love. The desert knows only allies and accomplices. The heart here is all in the very moment. Everything is bump and flow, meet and goodbye. Only the brotherhood of assassins ensures ritual continuity, if that is what you want, and some do. For the lessons of our Zikar teach us this. There are no brothers. Sun just crashed over the other side of the Ord, trailing no dusk. A copper-green disc rimmed with magenta burned on the back of my closed winds for a minute or two. And when I opened my eyes again, the stars were out. Sunset hit me like this, twenty-four times in Tam. There was no way I could go on further south. The man with the whip had summoned me early one morning to the fort where a drunken Arab civilian employee advised me in bad French to go back to America. My visa was canceled. It turned out to be true. 
Day after day, the captains remained adamant. I had consorted with undesirable elements. There was no appeal. When I protested too loudly, I was put under hotel of rest in my room. I was not to leave Tam until a military convoy was ready to go north. All other carries were warned not to take me. As a black man, a so-called American Negro, I know the meaning of perpetual quarantine. I have been under some sort of arrest all my life. I ought to be used to it, but I am and I am not. Just to breathe is to flaunt authority in some states, so I know how to flaunt authority really quite well. I walked out in the village like a tourist, learning to ride a camel a little further every day. I rented the beast from one of the tall Tarig slave owner gangsters who drifted around veiled, looking for tourists to guide. This one spoke little Arabic and almost no French, but by drawing easily erased maps in the sand, I learned a few things from him about the lay of the land. The village doctor came up on us silently during one of our geography lessons. He was a bit of a cynic, and I thought I believed that the captains were treating me badly. I am sure it was he who persuaded the Turk to take me north on his camel to Salah so that from there I could strike west to the other trail leading back south. As it turned out, I had to go back all the way to Algog before I would strike west again and south. My Michelin map showed Salah some 640 kilometers north to the road. A Torig racing camel was said to cover 60 kilometers a day, but the doctor assured me this was a legend left over from the days when Torig Purus was exaggerated by universal dread of the bloodthirsty desert pirates. Even so, that made me more than ten days to Sala by camel. We had covered the same distance in about 30 hours on continuous driving. An ordinary caravan cannot do more than 25 kilometers a day, for camels amble and stray, eating whatever they can as they go. On the road to Tam, we had, luckily for them, overtaken such a caravan of straggling, badly belasted animals, floundering under the blows of 30 thirst-maddened men who slogged through along beside them on foot day after day. In any case, no such caravan would dare take me with them, for fear of running into a desert patrol sent out by the captains. Besides, said the doctor, who understood where I wanted to go, the trail west from Sala to Regan was closed to all traffic. I would have to go 450 kilometers further north to Algot. From where I may be able to strike west through Talmud to Hardar on the other Trans-Sahara route, south to Regan, and then over the worst of the worst of the desert, the infamous Tanzaruf, through Badan, five down to Gaul to the Niger. It would be just a short side trip, or so it looked on my map, from Gaul to Timbuktu. From there, perhaps, I could drift down the Niger on a paddle wheeler or even a raft, for the winter season should provide enough water to the Niger to float river traffic. The Niger rises from torrential rainfalls in the mountains near the Atlantic, from where the waters flow back in a great bulking loop inlaid through desert country. Many a raft load of slaves must have perished on its sandbars. 
I crept away to Singer's compound, becoming each night less and less welcome there as my bladder of Keith was burning up in smoke and collapsing. No doubt my presence may have compromised the assassins, but the worst was an evening cut short by the sudden arrival of a man dressed entirely in white, bound up in yards of turban, veils, and flowing robes. From out this big bundle of laundry stared two black eyes, the most hateful I have ever seen this side of the clan, when they told him I was black, but Christian. I understand what he meant later when I saw twenty-four, thirty sooty-gray and putty-colored children slow their past in a long crocodile through the sandy streets of Algon. The brother from Alouf had taken me for one of the Heriton children of abandoned slaves, whom their terroristic masters deem utterly worthless and drive away to be taken in by the Christians, where, where there are still any such creatures about. The following night, when the blue tide of darkness had raced across the Sahara, bowling over the giant purple shadows of the amethyst mountains like nine pins, I went off and away without taking leave of the captains. In the Sahara, you are supposed to check in and out of each fort, showing your identity papers, stating your purpose and time of departure for what destination, as if you were leaving one island for another under semi-independent authority. I skirted the airship in a sandstorm on foot, beating my way back to a black balsa cave where my tour guide was to meet me. I would almost as soon trust my life to the clan as to those ex-convoys and hijackers of slave caravans, but there was no other way. A group of about twenty turrigs were sheltering in there from the storm. Among them, one hugely fat man, their king, the Elmaclaw, with whom I spoke through an interpreter. In his presence, they stripped me of my gold-class ring and my watch and the old-fashioned straight razor I carry as presents, even before we discussed their terms, which were cutthroat. When the storm died down a little bit, some of them went out in search of their camels, and I lay on my back on the sandy floor. I noticed a fine prehistoric fresco on the ceiling. Its ochres and blacks were still lively under a glalis, which looked so like a recent varnish that I was foolish enough to ask the fat king if they knew who had painted it. Too disgusted to translate the stupid question, the Arab interpreter snapped, "'Women's work!' I laughed to myself for a while, but the hours dragged on so that I had begun to wonder if they'd already sold me to the fort when my man came up in the dark night with the camels. I mounted and rode away behind him in the dark. The next days went by so quickly I could hardly remember them. We were mounted on two giant camels, more like yachts under sail than four-footed beasts. The first part of the trail was all downhill, through volcanic moon surfaces, landscaped, which fled past like painted stage sets, or, as I rarely looked up for fatigue, a nightmare series of absurdly old-fashioned surreal lantern-slide pictures projected on the curtains of ale almost solid with wind-borne sand. We paused to catch our breaths in a circular valley like a tar barrel, 500 feet deep, into which we led our bulky protesting camels through a bunghole in the stone drilled by the wind. 
We stopped for a moment to admire the white sand floor of the balsa barrel set out with thorn trees, which had been so clipped by passing generations of camels that they looked like a topiary garden designed around a gigantic chunk of black stone. Some as, as a truncated skyscraper, which have fallen from the cliffs to be sculpted by the blasting of sand into statues of monsters a hundred times bigger and more astonishing than those of Barmarzo, the valley looked and felt old and evil. As we mounted our camels, my guide pointed with his whip down to the old arrangement of white boulders, about twice as big as a man's head on which we had been sitting. The stones looked whitened, as if they might have been bitten by the acid from a car battery, perhaps. From the height of our saddles, they formed a pattern of letters to be read from the air. S-O-S. Seven Romneys, said my guide. Seven Romans? I asked in surprise. Romney Americani, he assured me, with a crude laugh from behind his veil. Americans? He pointed again with his whip to a message spelled out in stones on the ground. I could believe it was English, for I was able to make out the letters forming the word they. The word, if it was a word, occupied my imagination many hours and many days. For if anyone was to leave his last message in the Sahara, surely he would begin by I, or even we. Why they? From the last high black gate of the Hogar, we looked out over the great seas of sand, across which I understood, we were to run with our sagging waterskins banging away at our knees, tied to the pummels of our excruciatingly uncomfortable wooden saddles. We would have to make a big circle around most wells for fear of running into a desert patrol, darting in quickly to fill our skins with water, leaving as little trace as possible of our passage. I realized how hopeless this was when the Turig read tracks which he claimed were twenty years old near a wall, which is rarely visited because it yields in the past years only a trickle of bitter water the color of urine. It must have been already dry when this last caravan before us got there to find no life-saving water for their valuable merchandise, which they had abandoned and changed to Paris on the brink of the dry, deep well. Nearby, the wind had uncovered a mass grave dug shallow by a desert patrol sent out by the captains, presumably. Almost certainly not by the Arab traders who left their slaves here to die while they ran for the next well. The skin of a black child had been dried, tanned, mummified, abandoned there in the hot, dry sand by its young owner like a broken doll. My tall Turig, laughing behind his veil, played a quick game of football with some dried heads still covered by enough parchment-like skin to make them grimace abominably. He dropped several of them neatly into the dry well. It was a long time before they hit rock bottom. Luckily, we still had some water. Most monuments in the desert are flat on the ground, laid out stone beside stone, in a place where the wind is least likely to cover them. We came across graves of the faithful who had been dropped from some caravan, and either whole little camps of Muslim graves, marked by stones all pointing to Mecca, showing where an entire caravan had gone down. We came onto a mosque which is famous in all the Sahara, it is said to be composed of exactly 1,001 big stones, laboriously carried to the spot to be laid out in the dotted pattern out of a mosque. 
We halted our camels nearby, but neither of us entered this impressive building. I began to have a little trouble with my mind when it started playing about like a mind in the parallel mirrors of a barber shop. At times, I had sharp visual hallucinations in which I thought I saw myself from about twenty paces behind. As my turg rode on another twenty paces in front of my visionary self, that made three of us out on in the Sahara, and all three of us seemed to be singing. I could tell which one I was only when he would stop singing. Then I knew I must be the one who mumbled old hit parade songs to drown out the monotonous horror of my own thoughts. I hated the song the Turg sang so much that at times I found myself imitating him until my throat ached. He forced a reedy falsetto out of his throat or his head, which sounded so much like the wind that I could not tell where his voice left off, and the wind went on crying and sobbing. His treacherous tune was nothing like singer's black magic, which still warms my blood. I could feel this cold, windy air in my bones and knew I had heard it before. Horror suddenly gripped me like a big monkey, jumping up on my camel behind me, growing bigger by the hour until fear rode my camel onto whose hard saddle I clung as best I could. Someone kept singing over and over inside my head, He's going to sell you when you get to Salah. He's going to sell you. When we did get to Salah, I'd lost count of the days. All I wanted was to get into that town where I hoped I could give my guide the slip in the marketplace. My most rational fear was that he would denounce me to the fort. We left our camels, hobbled out in the Sahara on the outskirts of the town, and walked together into the market. As we passed a tiny saddle maker's shop as big as a telephone booth, I stepped up to the low wooden counter across his door because I knew I'd come to the place. This man was a brother. I can always tell by the signs, and he recognized me. As I gave him my sandals to cobble, he invited me into his shop, smelling of leather and feet, to sit on a pile of tan hides in the corner. My Turig, sure of me, strode grandly off to visit the town. I slumped down on the skins, pulling out my withered bag of katama to fill us a pipe. My brother let down his shutter, closing me up in his shop, while he went to go get strong green tea, bread, and a plate of beans, which we ate by the light a kinky lamp both putting our right hands in the same dish. While he poured out the tea, he told me the brothers were dancing that night in the dunes far outside the oasis where their drums would not be heard by the fort. We found the dancers in a big rolling dimple of sand. They're already in trance, sometimes a dangerous state. We jumped in and joined them, loudly professing and naming the Zakar. When the brothers took me by the hand, I became a link. I found it pleasurable enough to indulge myself all night. We switched rhythms back and forth faster than ever. I heard them call in Moroccan, where I first fell into a dance of this sort with Hamid. Here, no one knew who I was, and there he soon neither did I. Our bare feet drumming on the hard, hollow sands made the dunes rumble and thunder beneath us. May we well have been dancing over Farrar, one of those many thousand miles of underground waterways which the sedentary people of the Sahara have drug throughout the long centuries of their survival since greener days to bring water for miles away under the sand. Many thousands of specialized slaves died digging them, and even now many are lost when the Fagara they seek to repair caves in on them. The Fagara are deep, but of course not nearly as deep as the artisan wells sunk by the captains. From their artisans, boring more than a thousand feet deep in the earth, have spurted 
congenially blind fish who lost their eyes during eons of waiting in the dark. From a well of this sort once came a fossil crocodile which had given the drillers of oil wells to think. As we danced all night with the Sahara vibrating behind us, I felt through the chain of brothers in the usual manner, following the usual procedure, but finding none as inviting as youngest brother in Tam. I ventured outside of the circle. This is something I rarely permit myself because it means leaving the body unattended. Once out there, I thought perhaps I can get into the network of the Fagaras? I was feeling foolhardy that night, almost relishing an encounter with ghoul. I knew he was out there, no doubt of that. Along the way, I must go. The moon rose, rode high and away. Some brothers began falling to the ground in fits of possession. Two guardians called us ass, rode about leaping gargoyle dancers, having made themselves deaf to the zikar. When anyone fell, they ran up to thrust a stick up a bit beneath his teeth, while they reached into his head with their slim, indigo-dyed fingers to flesh fish out his tongue before they dragged him up, up close to the drum. This must have happened to me, for I thought I was out under the sands on a long, eerie chase after a ghoul through endless, whirling tunnels when abruptly I heard the drum again as a drum that finished the zikar for me. I found myself laid out on the sands under my burris, not at all sure where I was for a time. My brother, the sandal-maker, came up with my tour guide, finding me tongue-tied, afraid to admit I was afraid. They bundled me forcefully back into the tall saddle. As my brother helped me up, he whispered, There are no brothers, just revealing his rank. He added, You will find the old man of Buffalo Borgi and Algog. With that, he slashed at my camel with a whip, which suddenly leapt into his hand like a snake. Clinging desperately to my saddle, I was slept along after my inscrutable guide. For the next eleven days, he rode on before me at the same constant distance, perching high on top of his gigantic racing camel like a bundle of indigo rags ripped by the wind. We pushed on all that first night without stopping over a vast beach as hard as cement glowing blue in the fading starlight. When day broke, it was not rosy dong which hung across the horizon, but a smooth wall of black basalt, seven hundred feet high, the table of stone. My truck had crossed the Talmud in a night and a day, but my guide counted a day for each finger, ten blazing suns for those who much cross it by camel and stay out of sight of the trucks. We rested in hiding that day flat as stones on the desert near our camels, who lay trussed up beside us like boulders, swinging their swan necks as they ruminated. I lay there under my burris, thinking how ridiculous this was, but apparently nobody came by to see us. There is only one way to get up onto the table, along the ramp called the Akba, at whose foot we waited until night covered our quick dash up the ten miles or more of zigzagging incline, which no truck would dare navigate after dark. Just at dawn, we stepped onto the slick surface of the tediment, burned black as an elevated parking lot in hell. A dusty trail for trucks took the easy way across. We had to take the other. 
I had caught the trick of the saddle by then, so I could ride all day, reading the only book I carried in the hood of my black burrows. That odd report by our brother in Kalodun, the historian. The great desert, according to him, is life. No one can tell which way he has come into it, for the wind covers his tracks as he moves, and the prospect looks in all directions as no man had ever traversed it safely before. There are almost no animals but that winsome rodent, the dancing jerboa, or gerbil, and the fox-like fennec who hunts him. No bird song is heard. This land consists of shattered mountains, rotted valleys, and shifting bare plains, and an infinite variety of desolations. There's nothing at all to eat, and travelers are not allowed their own dreams. Ghoul is the master of the Sahara, and his abrasive voice moves the traveler in the very fiber of his being, for Ghoul's voice roars out like an endless pasture of camels, but it is only the hollow and disembodied wind grinding together the infinite and never-to-be-numbered grains of sand. When a man rides by night through the desert, he often hears voices, and sometimes they may even call him by name. Hassan is an easy name for the wind. Calling upon him, the voices may make stray from his path, so he will never find it again. Many, many travelers have been lost and so perished. Even by daylight, a man in the desert may hear these siren voices or the strains of musical instruments, the fainting, the dancing voice of a flute or the rattle of drums in a sandy defile, as if some army was coming over the crest to fall upon him and his camels. Many a traveler has been led away, or has fled only to die of thirst. Through the endless, echoing silence comes, like the song of an ant, the faraway grinding clatter and throb of a diesel, or sounding more like the swarming of wasps, the whine of an old oil driller's rig. But that's only an illusion. Many, many have fallen victim to this last illusion, for it too is part of the mirage of which all travelers speak but few can explain. All day long, under the white, hot, silvery tenting of the sky, we advance through the country of fear. We march in the eye of the mirage, with the dancing and swooning horizon, a full, wavering circle closing us in. Heat bellows up out of the ground, like the breath of a glass factory rolling out the mirage. Mirage is that quicksilver stuff you run through with your car on the rise of a macadame road in midsummer, but here on the desert as out in the sea, the round swell of planet Earth is your rise in the road. You and your guide and your camel or you and your diesel are shrunk down to the size of an ant, dragging a straw, only smaller. The watering eye of the mirage is the great show of the world. On its dazzling, round screen, you assist at the creation and destruction of the world in flames. This overwhelmingly present act of erosion, scurrying and pulverizing the landscape under your eyes, throws up a demonatical vision of glittering marshes forever just out of reach. But this is neither water nor fire. Perhaps it is a vision come through eons of time, back into the unthinkable past hundreds of millions of years, into that long mosaic afternoon when the protoplasm fumbled with blind fingers through boiling hot shallows on the baking shores of a planet which cooled.
Your camel suddenly lets out a terrible bellow and roars off to take a deep gulp of the stuff. When you get your camel in hand again, there all of a sudden are more of those piled up stones. Who can be piling them up? Black disc neatly balanced on a big white stone carries two red blocks topped by another white stone, round as a ball, on which stands a blade of basalt to twist into a spire, and it does. Mirage bends the air, throwing out long veils to catch up those stones into one little show. While you look, the stones swell into a fortress seen from a distance, a citadel with turrets and towers. No, it is a gaudy temple of Shiva, somewhere in Hindi, and now it falls back again into a pile of stones as you approach. The Sahara is a place of running shadows, but no shade. Other white stones are scattered about. Out of the corner of your eyes, you catch them jumping up quick as snipers to drop down again, changing place. White turbans and burnaces, the color of sand, yes, of course, these are snipers. And wherever you look, there is one who has you in his sights. And at sunset, they fire off a shattering volley as day is done. The stones burn all day in the sun, and when night falls, they are so seized by the sudden cold, they crack and scale off razor-thin shards of basalt, which have become this endless fathomless heap of broken black bottles we cross. So end the terrors of the day, and now the terrors of the night begin. Contrary to what might be true otherwise or elsewhere, the terrors of night in the Sahara are easier to bear. All day long, I can hold the snipers at bay only by being totally aware of each one. My being is drawn up tight as a bow. The terrors of the day are the terrors of the mind. At night, I know the stones cannot shoot me, for they are not my assassins. It is Ghoul who is putting me out of his desert at the point of a stone. Another nightfall, which, with its by now familiar rattle of gunfire, reassures me. I lay in the lee of my camel to unstring the bow of me, chuckling a little in sympathy with the animal's ever-so-justified moans and complaints. The desert fires off a last broken volley of exploding stones, and I laugh. Do they think they are chasing the sun? I shiver under my stiff black burns, scratching the itch of the sun from my skin. Sun collapses down in the west like a blazing balloon and is gone. The black rack of night, frosty with stars, clamps down on the great desert in me. Now is the good time, so I pull out my pipe and rattle the matches. Night and I settle down to the perilous pleasures we know. Yet even here many travelers have been lost and have perished. For they may not have their own dreams to guide them, and they hear the voice of ghoul like the bellowing of a legion of camels as numerous as the grains of sand. Travelers start up and run off without knowing whither they run and are so lost before sun seeks them out in the morning. I wake to the greasy glitter of stars mirrored back by the slick, sand-polished balsot sea all around me. My evil-tempered camel bucks and bellows to find his hobbled knees buried in the drifting sand. I seem to have floated above him, and with a bundle, which well may be me, if that can really be my body, half buried there like the dried carcass of some mythological bird. The drape and fold of my woolen burnus is sculpted in sandstone. 
The lunar Sahara about me is cindered over with a fine blue ash of frost. Time has stopped. A familiar indigo rag flutters out of the sand where I look for my guide to find him, too, buried in moon dust. I think we both may be dead. I glance up to see. It is six o'clock by the winter stars, and a light like a comet comes soaring up from the south. The night planes out of black Africa, I think, first, and when I realize it must be a cosmonaut, I put that out of my head. My mind boggles at the idea that someone like me could be up there, locked into an iron lung of that sort. I struggle back into the ruin of my half-buried body to warm my guide with my voice. A bundle of indigo rags breaks out of the sand crust over there by our other camel and sits up to stretch. From somewhere back in the folds of his taramust, the yards of fine muslum with which we both wrap our faces day and night, I see the light of his eyes, and in them I see what I know. I have never seen more than this of his face, for we both go disguised through the country of fear. We reach out to stroke palms in the briefest of greetings. It is enough. We can go on together another day. Early on the eleventh day, we came to the northern edge of the table stone. We crawled up cautiously to peer over, being whipped by the wind, suddenly awed and fearful, least we punched down hundreds of feet until the celebrated oasis of Algog laying directly below us like a pool of mirage. On the bottom of a bright sea of air, tapestried patches of feathery palm garden lay stitched out in green on the rosy golden sands, pinned down by the silver threads of water which run through them in elaborate patterns of irrigation. The various oases are strung out like a broken necklace of emerald around the former course of a fossil underground river. I could make out the military fort by its flag hoisted over the richest cluster of palms, and I plotted my course to avoid it. Some miles up the valley lay at least thinly planted satellite oasis, a mere handful of palms standing around a group of doomed adobe buildings dominated by a squat tower. I took that to be Buffalo Burge and started to speak to my guide, found he had silently turned back with the camels and gone. I swung my field grasses around again to catch a glint from the sun on another glass which someone on the tower of Buffalo Burge had trained on me. Trust any old man to catch me in his sights. I worked my way down a stone chimney in the side of the table of rock, tobogganed down a lodge coal of scree, and struck out across the country. I could make out a tiny speck moving out of the oasis across the bare plain, someone running to meet me. Within the hour, Sundanese Mr. Baragu came up babbling officiously, ambassador-wise. He wore a bright leek flowered Hawaiian shirt over baggy black saurul pants, and he smelled of sour red wine, even at that hour of the morning. He was still pretty glossy, but had already the plump side of thirty, a bit shifty-eyed, and he had obviously taken a drink. His old man, Monconal, he called him, was already delighted to see me, he said. Even as we walked over the desert, the colonel lay on his iron army cot on the top of his tower, following us closely through his telescope every foot of the way. We could feel him out there with us while we were still some miles from the house. He can walk in the sulk in my head, Mr. Baragu gravely assured me, regretting that, therefore, he could not hold my hand as we walked.